You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Christina Baker-Klein on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It, it's it's uh, it's new to a lot of people because it's just coming out in paperback. It's been out in hardback for uh, about a year, you know, but with COVID going on and all of that, people are just discovering all the stuff that they missed over the last year. And The Exiles is that book that we're talking about. It's coming out uh, when you're hearing this. It comes out today and uh, in paperback. Go grab it at your local bookstore. Bookstores are opening back up all over the country, and this is uh, this is a book that you just you've got to have for your summer reading. It's amazing, and uh, it, it was one of those stories that will linger with you and 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 stay in the back of your mind for quite some time. I love it so much. I know you are too. Welcome to the show, Christina. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Christina, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Hmm. I kind of love that question because, you know, the truth is all of us were born creative. Every child paints, every child writes, every child writes poetry and plays and stories and sings and dances. And then slowly over time, most people stop doing most of those things. And some people keep going. And I think the question is not kind of what's my earliest memory, because there are, I, I remember having a really creative childhood, but I think most people did where they drew and you know, colored and made up stories. It's more for me a question of why did I continue when mm. so many people don't continue? Um, and I think it's a combination of, you know, for some people, writing novels is feels natural, and for a lot of people, it doesn't. And I've I've really come to understand that um, as an adult. I was I did an event one time with. Um, I, I was writer in residence at a university in New York City, and I brought a, a writer to campus. And on the way home from the event, I was with another professor who doesn't write fiction, doesn't write um, novels. And she said, I said, how did you think it, go? it went? And she said, oh, it was it was good. It was great. Uh, fine. Uh, but she said, I honestly don't understand why anyone is interested in writing and making up stories. And I, I actually don't even understand why anyone's interested in reading them. And I just thought that was so incredibly honest and really interesting. And I turned to her and said, Elizabeth, thank you. Because when you do love to read and especially love to read fiction, and when you write fiction, you kind of think that other people feel the same way, but they don't all. And so there is a specific impulse to write fiction that I think is quite different from anything else. I, I think you're right. Um, and, I, and I tend to agree with you, Christina, about that, uh, the fact that we're, we're born creative. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of 
it's like life has a way of of whittling away at the the that creative spark that makes us individuals and makes us have individual expression and 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 the desire to express that expression if if, if that's yeah. even a, a a term um but looking back um what do you think it was that made you different uh what, was there anyone in your life that you can recall that gave you uh, encouragement or inspiration, maybe uh, maybe a parent uh, that encouraged you along the way or a teacher that recognized the the gift in you. Um, can you trace that back to anything? Well, I think my parents were encouraging. They were both, um, you know, when I was growing, I was they were quite young when I was born. I mean, not young for young people, but maybe 24, I guess. And they were they they were young professors, and they were this was in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, and they were um, you know they were sort of I guess what for lack of a better word hippies at the time. They my they were raised in very conservative households in North Carolina and Georgia. They're both Southern. But they kind of um, marched to a different drummer, I suppose, and um, were quite involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and all kinds of things like that. You know, they were we marched in parades and things. And um, so they were open. But I will say that there's something in my personality that I think is inclined to try to listen to the voices that are encouraging me and to slightly tune out the voices that aren't. <laughs> and, and, you know, every writer faces um, rejection. That's just part of the business and faces sure. a lot of, you know, sort of people saying no to you. But if you follow the yes, and I tell my children this, that, you know, there's going to be someone who's encouraging, who's seeing what that spark is and where it is in you. And so I'll give you an example of that. And this is such a very slim bit of encouragement. But when I was in when I was in sixth grade, I, our, my our teacher had us write, I, I think, a, something creative, like a little short story and handed it on a Friday. It was sixth grade. And on Monday, she uh, walked down the rows. This was back in the day when there were rows of children in a classroom. And she put each story down and she spoke quietly to the person, moved to the next person. And when she came to me, she said, um, um, Christina, um, I, I, I truly, I really liked your story. She didn't say I loved your story. She said, I really liked your story. And in fact, I liked it so much that I read it out loud to my husband and he liked it too. Now that was all she said, but I swear to you that kept me going for the next decade. I mean, she, so the fact, first of all, that she had a husband blew my mind, that she went home <laughs> to him and read him my story, this random man, and that she liked it and he liked it. It was all the encouragement I needed. But for any teachers out there listening, sometimes it's the smallest things that can influence your students. And I just went home and I felt like Mrs. Carey read my story to her husband. Like that was a really big moment for me. And it definitely um, made me feel that I had something to say. So that that's <laughs> that's a small example, but it is really indicative of kind of the way that I would save those moments and treasure them and, and listen to them. And um, and try to tune out the people who were saying that I was not good enough or that something 
you know, that I, I, I couldn't be a writer. Love that. Um, Christina, did you, uh, you know, when you, when you were grown and, uh, you know, go to college and, and start your life as an adult, um, did you, did you continue in your belief that, that you would be uh, a writer and this would be a, a career that you pursued? Or were you like so many of us that, you know, kind of get sidetracked with, mm. with paying bills and raising family and all that, and then writing comes back around to them? Well, I had a, I had some encouragement in college. Well, first of all, I should say, I, my parents had no money. They, I was the oldest of four. I went to college and did work study and I graduated with student loans. And then I actually went to graduate school in England and had more loans. And, but when I was in college, just by a fluke, I had taken a class with a novelist and she didn't even show any interest in me truthfully but she did pass my work along to her agency which was really weird so i suddenly had an agent at a very young age i mean like a junior agent in the agency but still and she would call me every four months and say are you thinking about your novel and i I finally i just said look beth i can't afford to do this i have to pay back my student i have to get a job and pay back my student loans and she said look here's what you need to do. You're going to apply to MFA programs and try to get fully funded for one of them. And if you can get fully funded, then you have two years to work on a novel and you can put it off. You can put off the work, you know, you'll defer your student loans. And so I did, I, you know, I had worked my way through college. I worked my way through grad school. And then when I did get this fellowship to University of Virginia um, and, and had two free years to write, I also you know, held down jobs. But but I had part of that fellowship was that I get, got to teach, which was a great experience because as I tell my kids who are interested in the arts, you know, you your avocation may not be your big vocation. You need to have a marketable skill. Um, so I learned to teach at the college level. And I also started a, a I, I sort of started a business called Writing Works where I edited um, I edited things for lots of people and I, I, I was a freelance editor. So I, I kind of learned to shape a life around writing, even though I was working and realized, you know, I had to earn money. Um, so I, it wasn't that I got sidetracked so much, although I did later get sidetracked and things happened, but it was more that I, I kind of realized I, I, I was never counting on being able to earn a living at writing. I just knew I wanted to do it. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPins is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline. Twelve beats and three acts. Each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board. Forty cards. We take the twelve beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. 
We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. I, I love the idea of building a life around writing uh, so that even though you may not be, you know, sitting down every day typing, uh, working toward that story, you are still immersed in in the world uh, enough that that the storytelling flame didn't dim. Uh, I love that. Yeah, I, that's really important. And I I had to just be really disciplined about writing my first novel. I did write the first draft in that MFA program, and my it was great to have that fire under me to get it done. Um, and so, you know, I've had to learn to be very disciplined so that I work and write. And then, you know, now I, I writing is my job, and I don't have to take other jobs. But I, um, but but for many years I did, and you know, I think that's a good lesson too that. I never counted on the fact that I would ever make a living and then things changed and I was able to, but it was a lot of years before that happened. Yeah. Um, Christina, I, I want to touch on the the MFA program for just a minute because um, I've, I've talked with lots of people um, that have been involved in MFA programs and some of them, uh, you know, talk about it in glowing terms. This was the best experience in their life and, and they, they, brought away uh, you know, so many tools that they continue to use in their life. Some people say that the MFA program just gave them more time mm-hmm. uh, to to work on the skills they already have. Uh, and some people, you know, and, and this is uh, this is rare, but some people, you know, look at an MFA program is is something that just completely squashed all of their um, 
it, it, in, okay. innate creativity. Um, looking back, how do you view your time? You know, other than just the 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 way that it gave you, uh, kind of pushed um the the student loans and stuff back uh, long enough to let you get your feet under you. But how do you how do you feel about your time in the MFA? I, this is a very good question. It's one I get a lot, and I think it's a very important question for young writers. Um, and and for I mean, people go to MFA programs at at any age now. I think you have to really carefully calculate what you're going there for. Um, in my case, I never. Mm, let's see. Let me put it this way. Some people came into the program thinking, hoping that they would find a mentor and and then were crushed, you know, when that didn't happen. It rarely happens. It can happen, but it doesn't always happen. And it as it was, as it happened, the University of Virginia MFA program at the time I went was pretty heavily male in uh, the fiction part. And especially uh, Rita Dove had come in as a poet. She was hugely important and um, amazing, but I wasn't doing it as a poet. Um, and that male culture at the time was also pretty lax. So a number of the teachers I had weren't, uh, teaching wasn't their highest priority, I'll just say. And so when I went in, I, I had really clear goals. I wanted to write a novel in two years. Now you're not supposed to write a novel in MFA programs. Sometimes today they're set up for that. I think they should be more. I think publishers prefer novels and it's hard to get a story collection published. So if you go into an MFA program, you come out with stories, it's often hard to know where to turn at that point because writing a novel takes so much work and so much time. So. I was lucky to have an agent who would call and whisper in my ear, look, just submit your old stories or submit part of your novel and just keep going and don't tell anyone what you're doing. Just work on your novel. So there was that. And then also I was funded, so I didn't come out with student loans. That was huge. And then third, um, I got much needed teaching experience, which meant that I could then go on and get teaching jobs, which I really needed in New York City. Um, I taught at NYU, I taught at Yale, I taught at Fordham, Drew, um, and those were that qualification was really pivotal for me and important. But I will say, if you don't have funding, and if there isn't a teaching component, some MFA programs don't have it, and also if it doesn't seem like you're going to find mentors then you may be wasting your time and money with an MFA program. Or if you don't want to teach, you know, at all, that again, that might not be the right program for you. Christina, um, your your new book, The Exiles, is your eighth published novel. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you um, how did you know um, what your niche in the writing community was? Um, with with the exiles, you know, eight books in, um, you're you're pretty uh, pretty anchored in 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 what a Christina Baker Klein book is. Um, you know, you, you start to develop a, a a brand, for lack of a better word, and and that seems very 2021 um, speak to to <laughs> say that. But um, you know, when you're first starting out, how did you know, and and how did you kind of settle into to what the types of stories that you would tell? You know, I didn't really at all. And in fact, I don't love the idea of being 
pigeonholed. I know what you mean about a certain kind of novel that um, that I write. I mean, I think that my 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 novels are pretty heavily character driven. My last three novels have been set at least partially in the past. My earlier novels were mostly contemporary, um, although my first novel is set in Tennessee and took place in the tw in the 1920s and in the present day too. So um, I didn't ever think that I was gonna go into this and write quote unquote historical novels. In fact, I don't love the term because I think it's a bit of a female ghetto, generally speaking. Um, I've written about it. I have articles about it. <laughs> um, but I, I wrote contemporary novels at first. Um, I was really interested in um, telling story, hidden stories, I suppose, and trying to look at calamitous events from many different perspectives. That's sort of the story of a number of my early novels. And in fact, that is still the story of my, of my novels set in the past. It's just that the scale is much larger. So I wrote Orphan Train, which is about this little known moment in American history where a quarter of a million children were sent on trains across the country from the East Coast to the Midwest over 75 years. And it was, it was the largest uh, social movement in our nation's history. Um, there are over 4 million descendants of these train riders, and it was a labor program. So not many people knew this story, and I stumbled on it when I found an article about my husband's grandfather. Um, and then the next book I wrote after that, so that was my, six, my sixth novel. The next book I wrote was, um, was A Piece of the World, and it was about Andrew Wyeth, the painter, and the subject of his best-known painting. And that, too, was set in the early to mid-20th century. So same time period, but in Maine. And then, you know, you asked me, how do I know what my next subject will be? I've learned to trust this sort of tingle, uh, this this kind of sense I have that a big story that I'm reading that I'm reading about or learning about a big story that not many people know. I mean, I'm interested, as I said, in sort of the hidden corners of stories and of history. And so I read a piece in the New York Times about these convict women and their children went, sent over to Australia for the pettiest of crimes, essentially as breeders under the flimsiest of pretenses. And I knew it was a big story. I didn't, I wasn't sure I had any right to tell that story. Um, and that's always true when you write a big story. But, um, but I knew I had that feeling, that sort of tingle, and um, that it would probably be worth following. So I did. Speaking of uh, the inspiration for books, your new, your newest book, The Exiles, and it's it's out now in paperback as well as hardback. Uh, so go grab your copy today. Is it true that um, that this book had at least took some inspiration? Uh, from that great Robert Hughes uh, book on Australia, the the uh, was it the fight the Fatal Shore? Yeah, absolutely. I loved that book. I've read it a number of times. It's the most beautifully written and comprehensive story of the British colonizing of Australia and how that happened, and it's it's fantastic. But but I was fascinated when I read it to discover that only one chapter, it's a 688 page book, and only one chapter is devoted to the convict women and to the Aboriginal people together, one chapter together. And <laughs> I knew those stories were much bigger than uh, Hughes was giving them space for. And so that was what I wanted to write about. And um, I went back to Hughes's history 
uh, as I was writing this novel, and it was very helpful. But I did realize how much he had left out about the other stories. What's interesting in reading this book is from a modern American perspective, um, you know, this seems like uh, another world. Um, Yet it's really not that that long ago when when you start, uh, you know, kind of rewinding history in the grand scheme of things. um, This is uh, this is pretty recent. Um, How do you feel like? The story that you're telling here um, will resonate with modern audiences, and and what do you think that we can take away uh, from a from a story like this uh, into uh, our modern life? Yeah, uh huh. Well, so much. I mean, I for one thing, when I write books set in the past, my goal is to write essentially a contemporary novel about a historical moment. In other words, I want the characters to jump off the page. I want them to seem um, like people you know or have seen. Um, I don't want it to feel like you're reading some sepia-tinged, sentimentalized picture of the past. Um, I want it to feel visceral. I want it to feel immediate. Um, And I want to catch the reader off guard in various ways by surprising them in the way that life surprises you. So um, my goal as a writer about the past is to make it feel like you're living in it in that moment. And so uh, I do everything I can to make that happen. I I try to write propulsive um, chapters that move quickly. I, um, I, I dive deep into character to show complicated people who make choices that aren't always in their best interest, perhaps, but also they're flawed, but they also, um, you know, are sort of trying to do their best, whatever that means. Um, And in the case of the convict women and the Aboriginal people that I write about in the exiles, I, I, I was struck, you know, as I was writing this book and when it came out last year in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, in the middle of all kinds of social turmoil during the pandemic, how many of our human responses are the same today as they were, you know, in the mid 19th century. And so I, um, I, for example, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that is discussed in my novel about women having the right to move in society and Aboriginal people having a right to literally to to um, own property and to move across their own lands. Those are all actually being played out in some ways in this in the news, you know, these days. Um, so I, I I'm with Martin Luther King that the you know, the arc of justice moves sort of slowly, but it's ever upward. I really do believe that. And as someone who writes about the past, I can prove it. I There are many things that are much, much better today than they were then. But humans are humans. And so we're flawed and complicated and uh, we we hold grudges and we're, we have prejudices. And um, I, I love being able to explore that in the past as a lens through which to see the life we live today. Well, Christina, one of the great things about uh, fiction writing and, and novels in general is uh, that we can take very heady topics like, like we've just talked about uh, and that you've described, and we can view those through the eyes of a character that we can connect with and that we that we learn to care about and and you know becomes uh someone that we sympathize with and and it's just it goes from the abstract 
to something that uh, someone that we can commiserate with and and you do that so so great with the the character of evangeline um where did she come from and how did you kind of devise this trajectory for her well when i was thinking about how to write a novel like this which is quite sweeping and has a lot of parts and takes place over several continents and um jumps forward in time i I realized that what I wanted to do was to create a central character who's a kind of stand-in for the reader. In other words, Evangeline is a reader herself. She she loves to read. She'd be happy to spend a lot of time reading. She's a governess. She's educated. Um, she d- talks about books and poems and you know novels with her father, plays Shakespeare, and um, and so. Evangeline is a middle-class person. She's she's a daughter of a, a chaplain, and she's never experienced anything like this world that she's suddenly thrust into when she's accused of theft and attempted murder, actually, um, which isn't quite fair, but it's how she ends up in Newgate Prison on her way to Australia. She, um, she Everything that happens to her is a fresh shock. Everything that happens is unexpected. And I wanted the reader to feel that. I wanted the reader to be with her experiencing what it was like for the first time to understand that you're sort of being locked away. There's a moment uh, when Evangeline is, she's just been accused of all these things and she's in a sort of a paddy wagon, basically a, a, a cart on the way, a, a carriage prison carriage on the way to the prison and she's sitting next to a constable and it's cold and she moves closer toward him without even noticing it and he recoils from her and the line that I wrote is that a a sort of chill she sort of realized with it with a chill that it was the first time in her life that she had ever she realized that she was about to learn what it was like to be contemptible and that descent into an understanding that your whole life is changing in such a dramatic way was a great way for me to kind of begin the novel and get the reader into the story. And then you move along and eventually you end up with someone who's super street savvy and smart about that life and is not surprised by anything and has lived through a lot of things. And um, so my characters, Hazel and Olive, both have been around the block and know what that prison system is like so eventually you're you end up with an expert but at first you start out with someone who's quite naive and doesn't know what she's in for one of the things that that i love about uh historical fiction is that you uh you can like we talked about have characters that you care about um and and that you go on a journey with while learning something about um you know th- events and and places and and people that that actually happened actually existed um how do you balance uh, those two things christina the the um the historical truth of uh, of events and and places and people while also being a fiction writer who weaves a story in and around these historical um, you know, signposts, if you will. Yeah, this is the whole, this is at the crux of writing about the past. I, I'm determined not to fall in love with my research to the extent that I'm giving a book report, which I think can happen in historical fiction. I think sometimes 
writers fall in love with the information they've gathered and then they can't let go of it and they just want to kind of show you <laughs> what they learned. So I've had to be really ruthless with myself to cut out absolutely everything that my character, my central characters don't touch, taste, see, hear, or feel. Um, I, I, I'm, I write it all and then I pare back when I realize that I've sort of gone beyond the, the explanation that I need. And, you know, of course, you do all this research and it's interesting to you, the writer, and you want to share it. So there's always a question of, am I, am I saying too much? Am I saying too little? How, how much does it take to really get the flavor of the experience across to the reader? Um, but I think for me, less is generally more. I want, I want to give a sense of what a place is like, but I don't want to overwhelm with detail. I'd rather, as I said, focus on the psychology of my characters and let them live in that world without always describing the minutia of what they're wearing and all of that. Uh, but it is a, it's always a question. It's always a tough one. And so like for the prison um, scenes, I went to the prison in Australia where the women were held and they have a museum and you can actually touch the fabric and see what their what their uniforms were like. And that was fascinating. And I did, I think, convey that pretty viscerally in the novel. Christina, when when someone picks up the exiles and gets lost in the story and, and goes on this journey with you, um, when they get to the end of the book and they close that back cover, um, what do you as the writer hope that they are left with? Well, I think even though there's a lot in the novel that happens that's pretty um, intense, these women survived. They they survived. A, 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 they went through an odyssey. But by the end, I hope that the reader comes away feeling that these poor women from England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, these British women who were swept off the streets by the British government in what amounted to a breeding program. They wanted, they wanted Australia not only to be a penal colony, but to, to, to be a real respectable colony eventually. So they sent these women over because Australia was nine to one men to women and they wanted children. They wanted to breed, breed the breed children. So they, they, you know, you stole a loaf of bread or possibly a spoon and you were put on a convict ship, sent to Australia. You had no rights. In England, you're at the bottom of the social ladder all over Britain, um, you know, and, and you can't climb up. And there are no social programs. There's no welfare. There's no foster care. There's no, nothing in place to help the poor. So you're stuck. But when you get to Australia, if you survive the trip and you survive the prison, when you get out, there's a lot of opportunity. And a number of these women went on to do really interesting things, become entrepreneurs, become teachers, as I said in the novel, to found hospitals, you know, to do all kinds of things they would never have had a chance to do in England and to have social mobility, to marry people outside of their social class, to, um, as I said, to get educated. and. So that to me was a really hopeful message. You know, today, 20% of Australians are descended from convicts. That's a big proportion. And um, those descendants are really proud of their ancestors. And honestly, they should be. Uh, they survived a lot and came through a lot and, and persevered. And many of them survived. 
The Exiles is available everywhere now in hardcover or in paperback. Uh, you can also grab it in Kindle edition or audiobook. Uh, it's available in every format that you could possibly uh, want right now. Go grab it today. There's going to be links in the show notes of this episode where you can uh, order it from Amazon if you uh, choose to shop that way. Um, Christina, this has been so much fun chatting. Um, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're doing, where can they find you online? Um, well, maybe you'll have a link somewhere, but it, my website is ChristinaBakerKlein.com and it's K-L-I-N-E. Absolutely. We'll link that up to make it easy for folks to find you. Um, the Exiles, go grab it today. Christina, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Hank, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.